This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Women at Work on Business Radio. Here is your host, Laura Zarrow. Welcome to Women at Work and our ongoing conversation about how we can help more women join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Executive Director of Wharton People Analytics, and today we're going to talk with the amazing Patty McCord. She's the author of Powerful, Building a Culture of Freedom and Responsibility, and we're going to talk about a whole bunch of things that I found really exciting and just a little bit confusing in her book, including how we can fix the perennial problems of women at work, things like like the pay gap, sexual harassment, and the endless quest for mutual respect with a radical approach to honesty and discourse. Our phones are open, and we'd love to have you join in the fun. Give us a call at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 844-942-7866. Many of you may have heard of Patty McCord as she was the chief talent officer at Netflix for 14 years, where she not only created the company where she wanted to work, but a profoundly innovative culture that really has fundamentally changed the media and entertainment landscape. She co-wrote their famous Freedom and Responsibility deck, which was called the most important document ever to come out of Silicon Valley by Sheryl Sandberg. In her new book, Powerful, she shares what she learned at Netflix and why she thinks companies need to ditch empty processes, things like performance appraisals, in order to actually focus on practices that improve performance. So with all that, I'd like to say welcome to Women at Work, Patty. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, I'm glad you're here too. So like I was saying, I'm, I was reading your book and it got me like crazy excited and a little confused. <laughs> the crazy excited part was because it's you're bringing the thought process of an innovator to HR, and we usually don't put those two words together. Uh-huh. And But the other part is particularly in all the work we do to advance women in the workplace, we look at these organizational metrics, many of which tie to processes that you say, like, really, we should just throw out the window, like retention efforts, performance appraisal. So help me make some sense out of this, please. Well, I think that a lot of it is just habits that we've had for a really long time. I mean, HR is the function that uh, I think more than any other place in the company does things because that's the way we've always done it. We even have a term for it. We do things the way we've always done it, but we call it best practices. Um, and we're really just sort of copying each other. Somebody showed me a handbook the other day. and I'm like, oh, I think I put my logo on this one in 1998. <laughs> so I have to tell you that those are the seven words I hate most, by the way. That's the way we've always done it. That's the way we've always done it. And so here's here's what like tweaked me and changed my perspective. And maybe it'll help you realize like why it's why it seems confusing. It seems confusing because it's really logical and truthful. <laughs> right. It's so honest. <laughs> what I have to say. And when you strip out HR and, you know, modern management language about empowerment and engagement and, you know, all that stuff, and you just start talking about delivery and success and uh, fulfillment and creativity and innovation, then you have to talk about things in pretty plain speak language. Um, and so I learned a lot of it from hanging around the engineers all the time because they only like things in a very linear, <laughs> logical way. And so when I started thinking about taking an innovator's or an engineer's approach to the work that I did, I realized the first thing an innovator starts with is what problem are you trying to solve? Right. Not what's the thing that I have that I want you to want. Right. So let's take feedback, right? Let's say you and I agree that giving each other feedback on your performance, if I'm your boss, might make you a better performer. Let's say you're an employer, like, yeah, mm -hmm. feedback would make me a better performer. Let's create a system to give people feedback so they'd perform better. I know. Let's do it annually, looking backwards in writing. 
right. <laughs> in words that don't really make any sense without any really actionable items and without any really clear description. And based on that stuff that we're talking about that you did last year, we're going to use that to figure out your pay for next year, which isn't really part of it, but it is part of it. It doesn't have anything to do with feedback. <laughs> it has to do with pay. Right. And we're all going to do this in a process where we're all terribly nervous and uncomfortable and disinclined to tell each other the truth. And we're all going to hate it. Right. Nobody likes it. Nobody likes it, right? So you would say, if you were an innovator, let's say you were somebody who looked to do a startup, <laughs> you'd say, wow, there's a problem. There's a really important problem that needs solving. How would we start from scratch and solve that problem? And you know what you do with the way we've always done it? You throw it away. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Crazy that. I know it. So, um, so that's sort of where I'm coming from. And once you get inside of my head a little bit and go, oh, she's trying to be logical and look at the end game, then it, it all makes sense, doesn't it? It really does. I mean, it was in reading the book, and I have to say, highly recommend it. It was illuminating and it was fun and it's an easy read. Um, but you do it. You take you clear away the clutter of the habits we have, the things that the sacred cows, the things we've always accepted and get to something that seems so fundamentally true. Yet at the same time, we know that those are often the hardest things to implement is being really real at work. Yeah, because we confuse. First of all, it's hard to be really real and honest because we don't have a lot of tools on how to do it. And we have a lot of tools in our upbringing about being nice. And then there's sort of the there's being nice and then there's being nice at work. So so let's let's unpack um, feedback for a second. Yeah. Most of us think in the modern work world that feedback means constructive criticism, means telling something, somebody something that they probably don't want to hear harshly in a nice way, <laughs> right? Right. When, when, and, and so what you do is you try and figure out how to say those, how to have those difficult conversations with people, thinking that if I tell you this bad thing that you did before is a bad thing, then the next time you do that bad thing, you'll feel bad about it. So that methodology is called guilt tripping. We all do it with our children. <laughs> um, it's somewhat effective. Right. But it takes a long time because you really have to keep slamming that person for doing that bad thing all the time. What if another part of feedback was catching you doing something right in that moment? That's kind that of radical. Meeting, right. I look at you and I say, Laura, oh, my God, that's whoa. That's exactly what we're talking about. That's amazing. So I could actually know. Yes. Do this again. You will. You will think doing that again. <laughs> right. Like that that day. Right. It feels great to do that. The same way, the same thing applies to teams, right? When you're accomplishing something together with other people that's hard and that you kind of think you can't do, but it's because everybody's together accomplishing it, that's really satisfying and, and fulfilling and joyful. And that's what I think motivates people at work. It also seems like there's a, a, a second tier to this. There's the when are we motivated by positive and negative feedback that makes us feel important. But then there's a different kind of intrinsic motivation. Like I went to art school and one of the things that we did every single day was all of our work, our homework was put up on the wall. Everybody in the room criticized it, said, change that. I like the blue. No, I like the red. And we listened not because we had to, but because we wanted to make our work better. And the answers were in the information we got from our peers. And so oh, I'm so stealing that. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great it's a great example of open and honest feedback that's given, you know, really with the intent of making each other better. Right. Because it's not about I don't like you. It's like, Laura, whether or not I like you. This thing you're making, here's how it can uh -huh. be better. And you get hungry for it. You seek it out if you're serious about getting better. Oh, I'm, I'm so going to steal that because, you know, I've been using a lot of sporting metaphors because I'm with coaches a lot. And, you know, coaches will say, well, absolutely you have to have a plan with every member of the team for the next game and for the next series of games and, you know, what you need to work on and what you could do better because we have to function optimally as a team because our purpose is to win, right? But I but I think that that is a great, that's a great 
other example of, because people say it's too hard, I can't do it. But you did it in your art class. Yeah, and we were 18, 19 years old. Now, granted, when when we first started doing it, um, sometimes you had to like hide the tears. And you had to learn how to not respond emotionally, because especially if you do care about what your work is, sometimes you care too much. It's like it's a part of you and you get really emotionally invested. But yeah, and I think that, you know, the the thing about um, that is different about work is that you do you also get emotionally invested, but you get emotionally invested on behalf of someone else. Say more about that. Um, because I think these days it's really easier and more reasonable to associate the work that you do with the customer that you're serving. Right. Who you're doing it on behalf of. Who you're doing it on behalf of. So, for example, I used to tell my team at Netflix, I would say, we are a service organization. It's not spelled (laughs) S-E-R-V-A-N-T-S. Right. (laughs) And by the way, the people we serve don't work here. Mm-hmm. Right. The people we serve are the ones that hopefully use our product and like it so much they te- tell someone else to use it for free. <laughs> <laughs> right. And then and then they can go through the PNL and talk about you know when somebody recommends some you know your product to somebody else for free that's a marketing savings of whatever your marketing spend per customer is. Right. So that 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 purposeful exercise of working together, creating something for someone else. It's almost selfless in that way. You know, you can Mm -hmm. still get emotional about it, but you're doing it. This is getting very esoteric. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to Women at Work. Um, Yeah. No, but in in it, I think there's some, there's a lot that's really important here because A, like as we look at, even here, when we think about we're building our own teams, and we're interviewing students and we're hiring for our staff. It's so interesting when you see the difference between people that are interested in advancing their own careers versus people that are interested in in advancing your collective goal. Yeah. And the way that they come into that environment. And it seems like if we're really going to be customer focused and that our ultimate drive it really is to serve, whether it's the users of our products or the communities we're trying to advance. It means that we're focused outwards and yeah. there's got to be a hunger to learn. But how do we like I know that I had the benefit of both loving and terrifying art school teachers in a mm-hmm. Switz design department to teach me how to take and give this kind of criticism. In the workplace, how do you help people learn how to do this, particularly um, across genders? Um, Well, you can't see it if you can't see it. So you have to model it. You have to see it modeled at the leadership part of the organization. So let's take uh, any gender issue, you know, if you don't see women in leadership positions, then you don't know whether or not you really can aspire to be. If mm-hmm. you see, if you have someone who's doing corporate wide sensitivity, unconscious bias training, and the sales guy still gets to be a sexist pig. <laughs> right. Then, you know, <laughs> there's a lot wrong you, there. <laughs> Well, I mean, this happens all the time, right? right? And so what happens when, you know, it's funny because I talk to so many leaders and CEOs and HR people, and I'm like, and that's when morale gets low because people get cynical because you say one thing and you do another. Mm -hmm. And so my advice on almost all of these issues is, Everything happens in behaviors. Everything happens in things that you can describe. Everything happens in, I used to say, because I was at Netflix, you know, make a movie of it, right? If I, <laughs> if I looked at that back on video, what would I think about that? What would my, you know, unbiased opinion be of that? So you can't, you have to inculcate in your culture the ability to be that, that non-gender biased organization. And it's really hard because the habits run really deep. So, you know, I have examples here. I work with this amazing array of faculty and they'll come off of a lecture or a discussion and they'll walk up to us and say, how could I have done this better? And Mm -hmm. I, and I've seen it 
disarm staff who first are a little flummoxed going, oh, Mm -hmm. my God, the superstar Mm -hmm. is asking me to tell him how to be better. But then it demonstrates that that's part of wanting to learn. And I see the staff model it in turn. Yeah, and I think there's tools we can give each other, particularly as women. You know, I I get a lot. I hate the term millennial, and I hate everybody's <laughs> focus now because, you know, it's called early in your career. I mean, I was a millennial. You were a millennial. What do you want when you're right. 24? Everything. When and weren't we early now? in our career for like 15 years? Whatever. Yeah. I mean, it was just, so, but, the, and so the, the new, new thing now that we're past millennials and the Me Too movement, now it's like, oh my God, how do we create, how do we create a productive environment for this multi-generational workforce? Right. And, you know, I was thinking about when you and I talked the other day to prep for this call, I was thinking about how it is easier for me because I'm older and wiser to sit down with a 24-year-old woman and say, hey, you know, he's kind of looking at your chest and not at your eyes when you're having a conversation. So here's what you can say to him. You know, when you look at, when you look at me like that, it's weird and it makes me uncomfortable. So stop doing that. And that's and they, and they will. <laughs> yes, but Patty. But you know, if, if you nobody tells them, and they're forty-seven, then right? They, they don't know, right? Right, and it's so on little... it's on multiple levels. So one is, um, like I remember being that age and those things happening. And first, there was like the noise inside of, "Is this real? Is my perception that that's what he's talking to real?" And if it is real. What on earth do I say about it? You become so frightened of what's going to come back at you. Yeah. So I think as women at work, we have a, a really, it's a really exciting time to to really have these conversations with each other and to, and to have each other's back, mm-hmm. right? To make sure that that young woman says, I'll be in the room if you want, right? right. Or, or let's 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 practice uh, how you might say that. Or, you know, and once you do that, you know, once you say that, and the world doesn't end, and he stops doing it, then I want you to go home and go, go, girl. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Part because of- it's that confidence that builds up for you to be able to really confront the hard stuff, and it also. It also creates an environment where the men that we work with feel like they're getting asked to participate, too. I mean, your example was so beautiful, right? The professor says, how could I have done it better? Demonstrating I'm willing to change. Right. And that your opinion matters to me. That's right. And one of the other things that's important about what you are recommending, like when we sit down with the younger women in our community and coach them and support them, is that. Um, you know, I had women who were more senior than I were, who were trying to help me and I didn't know to let them in. I also had senior, like, and I didn't realize they were trying to mentor me and I was just being dumb. But then there were also other women who were like, I figured it out. You figure out this is your, this is your hurdle. This is your test. And I, fortunately, I think more and more women are realizing a, it's not a zero sum game and that we want to hand the ladder down to help these women climb up. Yeah. And, you know, that's the way the guys do it. And maybe now we can stop being guys. <laughs> right. I mean, it's the way I came up. I'm an old lady. I, you know, my my early career was spent convincing older men that my ideas were theirs. <laughs> that, no, you too? You it's too? I got yeah. promoted, right? Because they'd keep me around because they they knew that it was my idea, but we all pretended like it was theirs. Right. right? And we didn't have terms like appropriation then or a way to yeah. affirm each yeah, other. Exactly. Right. So and and now, you know, we need each other and we need we need to and it's not just men and women. I mean, we need to represent back to um to who our customers are and who mm-hmm. we're serving. And for most of us, we're in companies that are serving everybody. Yes. So, so we need to make sure that we learn to respect each other's opinions on products and services because that's who's out there buying or using it. And the other thing is, I think we have a really great opportunity to do it together this time. You know, mm-hmm. we, I, I, you know, I'm a feminist from forever, forever. And, uh, 
we didn't include men as much as we could back then, and and I I think we should, right? And I think we should take the stuff that we own and really, you know, it's one thing to say I want to I want to say me too, but it's another thing to say let's make it we too. Okay, let's both change this. And then I know, you know, they're, they want it better too. They do. And also that they want to be part of a solution and they don't want to feel like they are the problem. Yeah. Even when they are, (laughs) when they are, (laughs) so when they are, they have to stop being the problem. Right. So, you know, it goes from the conversation you and I just talked about Mm -hmm. having to being in a meeting and being able to say that, that, that's mansplaining. That's it. That right there. You just did it. Right. You told me something I already know. In fact, you told it to me last week and I was in the room. <laughs> right. There's another dimension to this, though, that I'd like to explore with you. So, you know, you were saying something before, like um, if we can get to the point where you can say, look, can you move your eyes up here and have the conversation with me? Because what you're doing makes me uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. It, that feels hard because it's um, awkward territory, but it's not intellectually hard. The way that talking about our points of view are. And that one of the things you talked about really beautifully in the book is that in order for us to work on teams where we're really going to move the ball forward, we're going to start to innovate and create real solutions, we've got to have what are actually the more complicated discussions of where our points of view overlap and don't, and how we don't just have a binary conversation. How did you learn to do that? Are you hatched that way? Well, I, I, you know, I'm a Texan, so we tend to be pretty straight up. Uh, and I, and, and I worked with, you know, when I was young, I was always the only woman in the room. Um, always, always, always. And then, you know, most of my career was in tech. So it was always, always the only woman in the room. And I found that working with tech people, with engineers that are all men, it's a two by four kind of conversation. <laughs> like They don't, they don't do subtle really well. So, so I'm a little bit hatched that way. Um, but the other thing is that you know, when you talk about the end game and you talk about what you're trying to do together and you talk about what results are and you talk about what quality is, then you can really have a pretty straight up conversation. You can be pretty honest with people. And the the thing that you can hang your hat on is truth. Say more right? about that. It, you know, when we obfuscate things and we make the, the language that we use so fuzzy, then we actually slow things down, right? If I'm going to have a conversation with you and I'm not going to really tell you what I think and I'm not going to really tell you what you could do better that would make it operate more smoothly, then we have this weight in the room that's always there and it slows us down. Yep. It's like when people speak in euphemisms about sensitive subjects or even sexual subjects. Like if everybody's speaking in euphemisms and softening their speech, then do we really know what we're talking about? And we waste a lot of time. So, So you ask how I did it and how I did it was I try as often as possible just to use plain English. (laughs) <laughs> you know, just to use. Uh, so here's a couple. Here's a couple of tricks I've learned. One okay. of them is, you know, when that when we're having those euphemistic conversations and it gets all out there like that, I'm like, could we just use like regular words? Right. <laughs> like just for this conversation, rest of this conversation, can we use just sort of like basic conversational stuff? Here's another thing I learned. Sometimes when I'm frustrated, and this is also in the book, and the other person. It, is just I feel like dancing around what we're trying to talk about. I ask them, "What leads you to believe that's true? Where do you where do you think that comes from?" Right? I I think that you're opining about something and you're saying it as if it's true. What what evidence do you have for that opinion? And so when you say that, Patty, because this really struck me in the book, and it also reminded me of a colleague that I really cherish who does this all the time. And when he does it, it comes across as curiosity. Like, I'm Uh not understanding where you're coming from. Bring me Uh into your thought process. And it and it does two things. One is it sometimes leads to a phenomenally um, 
uh, a much richer conversation because we're now working from what are our truths? What are the things informing us? But it also right. instantly reveals when we're mucked up in something. Yeah, and it's respectful, right? It yes. Says, I really, I really want to know where you're coming from because I really want it to be better. And it puts us on common ground, right? So I'm, and, and I'm not accusing you. I just really want to know where you're coming from on that. And, right. You know, you 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 said you've had this experience, and so have I. And what's fascinating when you come at the person like that, sometimes it disarms them, and you you can see the person kind of like going inside and thinking, "Where did where does that come from?" <laughs> yes, because <laughs> you know, now like, you're no why, longer saying, "What the hell you? are you thinking?" You're yeah, saying, I, "Tell me." Yeah, it makes yeah. a huge difference. But it is, yeah. I think, a practice skill to know how to bring that into a conversation it's, comfortably it's also, in your own words. It's also starting from the place that the other person is worthy of your time and respect. <laughs> a radical concept, Patty. Well, but, you know, if you, I mean, that's part of the holistic way I, mm -hmm. I talk about approaching work, which is only hire really smart people who are really engaged in the work that you have to do for the customers that you have to serve. Okay. So if all those things aren't there, then don't do it. Don't hire those people. <laughs> right. right. And, and, and also at the core, we should be engaging with mutual respect. It should yeah, be our point of departure. It's a Absolutely, it should. But but when you have that combo, when you have another person that you think is really smart, mm -hmm. who you respect, who you're both working together for the same goal, and you disagree, right, it's really important to figure out what's driving that because it's inefficient. It's true. Um, right? So. so I, I, you know, in my book, there's one of the things I say, I'm like, if I'm going to stab you in the back, I got to go get a knife, you got to turn around, <laughs> yeah, right. I gotta, you know, get you between the shots, you got to kill you, I got to get rid of the body. Oh my God. I mean, this is a lot of time we could be spending actually working. In your book, you've talked about treating people as adults and what that yep. means in the workplace. Can you talk to us a little bit about what does that really look like and why is that not what we're doing now? Oh, you know, the pendulum has swung from, and partly, you know, it, it's, it's the economics of the situation, from, uh, well, we better protect ourselves against those evil employees because they might sue us, to, and, and you know, that's infantile too, right, which is so many rules and so many piece, ways to give ways to take permission away from people so that they have to they have to ask somebody else to be able to do anything. And so now the pendulum swung all the way the other way. And now we have to empower everyone so that they can be gloriously happy at work and enjoy their craft beer. Um, <laughs> right. So, you know, adults are somewhere in the middle. <laughs> <laughs> right. That we have some combination of responsibility with our freedom. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, I've I've literally had conversations at work with, with people where I'd say, you know, what, what might an adult do in this situation? <laughs> right. <laughs> what would a grown up do? It's kind of back to the thing we talked about before the break, which is, you know, if you were if you were in charge of this, what information would you like to have, right, to make right. a good decision? And so, I just think if we again hire smart people who are interested in the work that we do, and I mean screen people for maturity. And so when I talk about poorly formed adults, I don't mean older people. Right. It's not about age. No, it's about maturity and judgment. I mean, you and I both know really mature, especially for you at school, right? Mm -hmm. You know, really mature, hardworking young people. And we both know really immature, <laughs> <laughs> you know, 40 year olds, right? So, um, it's about, and maturity is about self-awareness, about being able to, you know, be straightforward in your communication and be able to listen. And so that's what I mean by adult behavior. It also seemed like it was about, it wasn't just what are the real markers of adult behavior and the trust that you give to people when they behave like adults. But it's also, it seems like when you treat people like adults and believe that they're decent people who will do the right thing. They seem to do the right thing. Yeah, and I think that the, the second part that's a little more subtle is expecting a lot from each other, right? So it, it's your, it, 
I, I often tell managers, you know, you should expect excellence from everybody. And you'll be surprised what you get, even from mediocre performers. <laughs> it's funny as you say it but there's something there yeah there is right it's like and and again i think you can do that with adult behavior so if somebody wants to complain and whine about uh there's not four kinds of flavored water or you know you don't like the color of your t-shirt at work and you think it's your job to listen to them Then, then you are setting the stage for people to behave as if that's an important thing to do at work. And so that's what I'm saying is that when we do these, oh, my God, the fight for talent is so hard that we have to just make sure that everybody's, you know, fed and watered and clothed and groomed at work, then we shouldn't be surprised when people don't act like responsible adults. Because we haven't said to them that that's an expectation. Yeah. And I or modeled say- it. You know, the other thing is um, that I think that we could do a better job of at work, um, sort of all of us at every level going forward, is look for and reward when people use great judgment. So one of the ways that we've tried to instill that is with rules, right? Well, I'm not sure if you're going to make the right call, so I'm going to either give you someone you have to ask permission from to tell you what the right call is, or I'm going to give you a handbook or a guideline as to how to do that. But isn't that then taking away the opportunity to exercise great judgment? Both of those are. Now, there's places in, you know, if you have a a situation where safety is important, then you have to have a lot of rules around it or, you know, repeatable call. But the calls that people make about what's the right thing to do, that's that's learned by watching other people do it well, right? Mm -hmm. And it's also learned by making mistakes. Yes. You know, I I consulted with a a CEO and she said to me, um, you know, if you were just here with me every day, uh, you know, I wouldn't be making all the mistakes that I'm surely going to make early in my career in this role. And I said, that's true. You wouldn't, but you wouldn't learn anything either. Please. I didn't want to bring my own daughter home from the hospital without a nurse because I was like, could you please just make sure I do this right all the time? (laughs) I did. No, I did too. I was like, no, there won't be a button at home. <laughs> but in the same way that we had to you know, solve it without the button at home, it's not just that you stand on your own and make mistakes. I think it's that when you stand on your own, you and it's something that you can learn is how do you break down the problem in front of you so that you can understand what problem you're solving for? Yeah, let's take it to interviewing, for example. So before I talk about interviewing, I want to say... Um, a couple of important things to women about interviewing. Uh, first of all, when your company talks about employee engagement, they did not put a ring on it. And when you go interview someone else, you are not cheating on your husband. And so for all the women out there listening to this, I want to say it's really important that you spend some of your time uh, interviewing with other companies so that you, A, stay in practice doing it, doing it. B, you tell a stranger what you want, which is really revealing. And C, you find out what you're worth. Okay. Right? You're worth in the, your compensation, you're worth what somebody else is willing to pay you, right? And so when you do that, when you go to an interview or you are interviewing, remember, you're not cheating on anybody, you're just seeking information, then when you use that opportunity to really seek information, then, you you know, both sides of the, of the interviewers learn a lot. And when I interview people, what I'm looking for is not just skills and expertise. I'm looking for somebody who's made mistakes and learned from them. As a, as a way that they learn and a, a measure of their, their candor. Right. I'm not looking for somebody who's never made an error. And I'm not Because they don't exist. Because they don't exist. And I'm not looking for somebody who prides themselves in being the person that breaks things all the time. <laughs> <laughs> so that you can be too extreme in the other direction. You can. I, I, there's another, another company I consulted to, and he's like, I, I think mistakes are so important that every time somebody gives makes a mistake at my company, I give them a bottle of champagne. I'm like, well, that's stupid. <laughs> Right. That might be gone a little overboard. Yeah, it's a little overboard on the mistake thing. So it's not just that you made a mistake. It's that what did you learn from it? My mama says, my Texas mama says, 
you know, honey, the difference between a wise man and a fool is that the wise man doesn't make the same mistake twice. Exactly. My dad tells me the same thing. Yeah, um, yeah. I want to back up for a minute, though, because there was a lot in what you just shared about interviewing. Um, so yeah. I want to unpack it a little bit because I don't want to miss it. And one, though, was something that I wouldn't have expected to hear, which is that when you go out for um, interviews, A, we're doing it because, you know, we should see what's out there and it pre and it helps hone and maintain our interview skills. Um, it gives us a chance, chance to see what kind of offers we get from other organizations so we can benchmark against the salary we have. But you said it, it makes us tell a stranger what we want. Talk to me more about that and why that's important and hard and how to approach it. Because no matter what, when you're in a place for a while and you have a relationship with your manager, it's hard to say sometimes, this is what I really want. And sometimes, you know, because you kind of tend to tell them what they want to hear or you understand the context of the question or in many companies, God forbid, you wouldn't want to be perceived to be disloyal. Right. Or demanding or demanding because then that person's going to tighten their grip on you. Mm -hmm. Like here's here's a funny thing when I was early in my career I worked in recruiting and we were having uh we were trying to put together rules and processes in the handbook about how you could uh you could bid for another job inside of the very large corporation I worked at. And I said, "Hey, why don't we flip it around and have managers recruit you know from other departments, like we'll teach managers how to be headhunters and they'll go out and find other people from other departments. And one of the HR people on my team said, you mean encourage poaching? They said, yeah, right. So if somebody calls from the outside, it's called headhunting. And, when and inside we them, it's poaching. Yeah. And when we go seek talent in another organization, we're doing a great job staffing, but when we do it inside the company, it's poaching. And the irony is at the same time, we don't want to lose talent and we want to grow them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, that's why, you know, part of my book is just to expose my secrets of what I've learned by doing this for a living. Or maybe it's to expose the fact that you just looked frankly and said, this is crazy. Can't we do something rational? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I want to teach you how to do that, too. And I want to teach other people in the workforce how to do that. And, you know, one of the things to learn as you go through your career, and so your career is a journey. You're going to work in lots of different places. I just did a talk with 1,500 people in the room, and I said, raise your hand if you're still in the job that you have and you got out of college so all of your students can hear this, right? And not a single hand went up. And I said, <laughs> what? <laughs> they couldn't retain you? 1,500 people worked for 1,500 organizations. You know, it's rare. It's, it's almost, it's almost like an endangered species of somebody who had started a company and end with a company. It happens in academia sometimes. It does. And what's interesting yeah. is I also see people, particularly coming out of the MBA program, who are hoping to make a career at these large dynamic organizations. Um, what's startling about your kind of quick survey was that how comprehensive it was, that you would expect there to be some, not none. Yeah, I know. I was my first, I've tried it with 500. <laughs> <laughs> so now, I, you know, there's always a couple in the room and, um, or, and, I, and, and I've learned to say, if you're an intern, you have to put your hand down. <laughs> right. Because it's your first job. But even if I even if there are people like if I go to a, a large corporation, a large global corporation, and there are a number of hands that go up, I say really but literally the same job and all the hands go down. And so, you know, your ability, your opportunities to learn and grow and do more um, interesting work might depend on the size and scope of your corporation and the number of products that it has. Absolutely. So uh, let's talk about the executive team for a minute. You know, so sure. let's say we're going through our careers and whether we've hopped from company to company or we're that unusual one who wasn't in the 1500 of your statistically mm -hmm. significant sample. Um, how when an executive team wants to change, like, you know, y you and Reed got together and said, we're going to build this thing. How mm -hmm. do you start to build an executive team and anchor them in this kind of alternative point of view, and then make it real in a company? 
You don't do it at once. There is no magic wand. It's a period of reflection and feedback with each other for years. <laughs> years, right. <laughs> yeah, uh, and you practice this. You you just um, try these, you know, try these uncomfortable conversations with each other in front of each other and then note to each other that nobody died and everything was fine and we still got our stuff done. In that process I, with you, what mm -hmm. was harder to learn, giving the candid feedback or receiving it? Oh, for sure, receiving it um, because there's a... You know, you have to learn to know that behavior is data as well. And so what what we tend to do when we hear stuff that we don't like or we don't agree with is we say, oh, well, you just don't like me. Yeah, we, we assign it to some other explanation. We assign it to some other explanation. And because you don't like me and I know that you just don't like me, then I don't really have to listen and it's not actionable. And that's easy. I, you I, just made it go away then. You just made it go away, right? So I was literally before I was on the call having lunch with a colleague from back in the days at Netflix. And we were reflecting on one of our colleagues said, you know, I'd given, I'd given him some feedback. And he said, well, basically that you just don't like me. There's no consequences. Uh, you know, it's like, and, and my feedback to him was, you know, you're kind of moody and it's really difficult because people don't really understand when they can approach you. And so it's really inefficient. Right. And he's like, yeah, yeah, whatever. You know, you tell me that all the time and I just don't think it's true. <laughs> and the colleague said, well, actually, the other day, you know, these seven people went into this room to discuss this conversation they were going to have with you. And I choose She's this brilliant mathematician, right? And she said, and I actually calculated the, the salaries times the hour. Oh, my God. <laughs> you know, she's like, and so the, there's a, just so you know, there is a financial consequence of, of your behavior. <laughs> right. <laughs> the accumulated <laughs> yeah. effort to fix it. And she was just like, but she's like, you know, from a more pragmatic perspective, why, why would this be somebody's job? Why would we want to have it be somebody's job to figure out when to approach you because of your mood? Like, right. really? You want to, is that how we want to operate? And, you know, and then it was like, he, he said, you know, I'm not sure I'm aware of it. So I, I remember going to watch him with his gigantic team meeting and him standing up and saying, Hey, by the way, I got this feedback at our executive staff the other day that I can be kind of moody and hard to approach. And to be honest, I probably am. I just don't know it. Somebody out there needs to be brave enough to tell me when that's happening. Oh my God. That's awesome. That's brave. Yeah. So think about that as an example of executive leadership. Mm -hmm. And it's, right? it's sending so many messages. It's one that it, that, I really do want to get better. I've heard you and I'm reaching out again to get more information and hope you can understand me. Like there's some, mm -hmm. some compassion in there as much mm -hmm. as there is role modeling. So that's how executive teams get better. That's amazing. So you were mentioning how much money was in that room to help correct that behavior. Let's talk <laughs> about salary for a minute. Okay. All right. So, because also there's some, you know, radical things in here about setting salary. Um, let's start with, you mean, we shouldn't do it with a complex calculation that equates all roles with the same title across a giant organization? But we do. Don't we? Every day? Every, every day. And, um, and then we also want equality and fairness which translate it's it's kind of like feedback equal pay equality and fairness equals the same now so let's take when that's true and when it's not right um when you have two people who essentially have the same background that are doing the same job they should have the same pay period end of story okay and what happens with women in particular is that if you start out in your career and you work for a firm where that's not in fact true and they pay you based on what they think you're worth as a woman and you're worth less than what a man is, if you stay at that company with a traditional salary increase, that's a 6.5% merit increase budget with a bell curve distribution and rating and ranking and salary levels, you'll never catch up. Right, ever. The math, 
the math won't work ever, right? And so that's an important thing to know, particularly as a woman, that every time you change jobs, it's really important that you get an idea of what the market is paying. Right. That's really important. Let me pause for one second because I just want to point out we're on Women at Work on Business Radio on Sirius XM 111, and I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, and I'm talking with Patty McCord, who's the author of Powerful, Building a Culture Culture of Freedom and Responsibility. So, yeah, so when you start out and your salary is too low, it's not just your salary. It's Social Security, it's your retirement, and it's the way that everything builds after that, right? Yeah. So I think this is something, uh, and people get frustrated with me because they think that I'm being very simplistic. Uh, I have a two easy solutions. So let's fix equal pay. Right. <laughs> right. So uh, the three most female dominated departments in almost any firm are sales and marketing, HR and finance. So uh, for all of you out there who are in HR and finance, we own pay. <laughs> Talk about that some more because you do. But why don't the women in HR and finance behave like they own? Because we've always done it this way. It's best practices. Ah, best practices. I feel like we should have a big red siren that goes off whenever we hear it now. (laughs) I I used to have, in my my department, I used to have uh, uh, HR buzzword bingo. (laughs) Right. Right. And somebody would be like, uh, and if they'd get an email or somebody call, they'd be like, empowerment, G14. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so let's talk about how do we help? Because, you know, one of the things that's radical, that was radical about Netflix and the way that you explain this from the top down is that change could happen um, within a whole organization because its culture was so fully embraced by its leadership team. Yep. We have a lot of organizations, though, where we've got good, exciting people, hopefully some who are listening today, reading your stuff and thinking about how to get rid of the nonsense, who yeah. want to to start like owning some of this personal power and paving a way for a different way of operating. If you're within yep. an organization, but where this is not the organization's culture, how do you start making change in this regard without stepping on the landmines? Well, you can start small. Um, you can start by asking good questions with a a good answer, right? Um, Hey, I'm curious about, you know, pay for men men and women in my team. I'm curious about my own pay. Can I learn more about how you determine it? So HR people don't explain how pay is figured out because no one asks them. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Right? They just take it for granted that you got a terrible raise or whatever it is, right? Or they come, the other thing is we, here's another myth. People don't talk about their salary. Right, with each other. As soon as you get promoted to management, you think that nobody talks about their salary. Before you get promoted, you show your paychecks to each other. (laughs) Goofy thing. Like, I'll show you mine if you show me yours? We do. Come on, when you're young, don't you do that all the time? Yeah. Actually. As soon as you're a manager, like, no, 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 compensation is. Compensation is secret. It's like, no, it's not. They didn't change. Everybody knows each other's salary. And they ask. Well, like they should. It makes sense. So, so let's do a couple of practical things. One of them is um, if, if you want to change a, the culture and you're in leadership or you're an executive, the most important thing you can do is just pay attention to it and ask yourself why, you know, and walk through, you know, uh, on a pretty regular basis. Let's take, a, let's take a look at one part of how we're operating in terms of how we manage people and say, is this the best way we could do it? Start small. So the famous Netflix culture deck that you referenced at the beginning when you introduced me, that took us 10 years to write. Yeah, that was not an overnight sensation. <laughs> it was not an overnight sensation. And we did not publish it as a, here's a manifesto of how other people should work. We published it as an onboarding document to say, here's how we're trying to work together at our company. And here's the journey we went through to do it. So if you're in leadership, then just just pay attention and ask good questions and think about changing things incrementally. And one and, of the things that was so amazing in the deck is that the way that it read, because, you know, it, 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 when I read it anew um, just the other day, part of what I was so taken by is it talks about what was important to you and how does that come out in these different places? Like right. we do not accept sexual harassment. 
period. Yeah. It's not okay. And if you see it and don't say something, you're not okay because we all take care of each other. And it seems it was one of those things that seems so fundamental and so simple, but weirdly so hard for organizations to get to. Yeah. So you got to pick something and say it. <laughs> and then you got to pick something and do it. Right. And then about your question about if I'm an individual and, uh, you know, you got to start, you got to start with questions that uh, benefit the team or the organization. You have to ask questions with an answer in mind. I always tell people, look, problem finders are really not very worthy. They're not very useful. And everybody thinks, you know, I'm the one that pointed that out. I'm the one that found that problem. It's like, so what? (laughs) So, but, but problem problem solvers, they're really, really helpful. And so one of the things whenever you are an individual contributor and you point out something in your organization that needs to be fixed, it's really important that you've thought through the fix. That you understand what it could look like and what its implications are. Or what you what you information you'd want to have to make a good decision there, right? So put yourself in the in the shoes of management, right? Mm-hmm. And so sometimes you have to do that and maybe this comes from my getting other people to listen to my ideas, but <laughs> you have to do a little bit of the thinking for them and come up with a solution. If you're in an organization that you believe that the pay disparity is um, deeply ingrained, inherent in the way the company does business, nobody's ever going to change it, then and you're sitting around waiting for somebody to notice that you're working really hard and you're not getting paid as much, you you got I got to tell you a story. You got to go. You got to vote with your feet. So I'm at the Texas Conference for Women, and we're done with my talk, and there's a group of women standing around, and one of them says, I want to talk to you about how I handled my equal pay issue at work. And I said, okay. And she said, well, uh, I work harder than everybody else in my department, and everyone else is a man. She's a younger person. And right. she said, and I, I mean, I do a lot more work. There's a guy in my team who does, literally doesn't do anything. I'm telling you the truth. So I don't think I'm being paid fairly. So I went to my boss, and I told him what I'm telling you now. And I said, okay, what he's saying? She said, well, he looked at me, and he said, honey, we're a tenure-based organization, and when you've worked here as long as John has, you'll have earned the right to not work very hard. Oh my God! So I'm doing bo- <laughs> I'm doing my Botox face, right? You know, right. Wh- wh- which I use in interviews and difficult conversations where I say, "Well, at least he was honest." Right, and she knows. Go, Patty. I hate to do this. I love talking to you, and we're running out of time. All right. Thank all you right. so much for joining us. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.